The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Theoria Francos to discuss populism in Europe and the United States, as well as her review of Chantal Mouffe's new book on the question of left populism. As usual, you can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast, and you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is, as always, at Poll Theory Other. If you've been enjoying PTO and finding it interesting, uh, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you really enjoy the show, please think about supporting it via Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll gain access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thea Ria-Francos is an assistant professor of political science at Providence College. Her research focuses on resource extraction, radical democracy, social movements, and the left in Latin America. Those themes are explored in her forthcoming book, Resource Radicals, From Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador, which is forthcoming from Duke University Press, as well as in essays that have appeared in N Plus One, Dissent, Jacobin, amongst many other venues. The interview with Thea was prompted by her review of Chantal Mousse's new book, For a Left Populism, and you can find a link to her review in the description of today's episode. In your recent review in, in N Plus One of, of Chantal Mousse's new book, For a Left Populism, um, you, you begin that review by writing that populism is the shadow of representative democracy. C- could you explain what you mean by that? Um, so yeah, I'm kind of taking this idea of populism as as a shadow or a specter of representative democracy from other democratic theorists who have kind of noted that populism is a recurrent theme um, after we get into the age of mass politics and the age of representative democracy. Populist movements have a kind of recurrent, maybe cyclical quality to them, um, and so you know, from from the perspective of formal institutions, populist movements are an excessive kind of grievance-based popular movement that um, emerges, as I I kind of refer to in the piece, in the gap between the utopian promise of democratic sovereignty and the idea of of popular self-rule and the disappointing experience of politics as usual, which is kind of, you know, whether we think of that as kind of typical partisan fighting or bureaucracy, um, just kind of the grind of politics doesn't seem to live up to its utopian promise in so many ways. I think that kind of pushing beyond that kind of basic statement that that democratic theorists have made about populism, um, there are particular kind of conjunctural moments in which populists populism seems to emerge as a political force. And also, I think importantly, it's important to note, is also seen as a threat by elites. Um, and those moments are, are moments of broader 
economic crisis, of um, constitutional crisis um, in some contexts, and and the kind of combination of of political and economic crisis and a particular regime type of representative democracy seem to be failing in its response to those crises, I think are the kind of contextual moments in we get in which we get both populist um, populist movements and also elite fears of populist movements, um, which are not quite the same thing. I kind of want to distinguish between populism and, and then the elite response or elite kind of framings of populism as a threat to democracy. And so on that question of, you know, as you say, democracy sort of runs up against the, the disappointment that, that representative democracy is, that it doesn't convey the degree of sovereignty that people perhaps expect. Would you want to think of that primarily in terms of, of the fact of, of capitalist social relations? Or would it be something beyond that? Yeah, I mean, I think on a variety of levels, the kind of promise of of self-rule is some kind of collective determination of the conditions of shared existence. And it's certainly true that in the context of capitalism, uh, even a relatively robust democratic regime is quite limited in the spheres of collective life that it can, you know, kind of make decisions about um, since so much of of collective life is privatized or in the purview of the private sector or at the whim of private investors or capital. Um, so I think that 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 basic contradiction, in a sense, which is one, you know, to be fair, that that move attends to quite a bit uh, once once we get into the meat of her argument, that that disjunct between um, democracy as as collective control over the conditions of shared existence um, in its radical form. That's how I would define democracy um, and capitalism privatizing um, that control and and hierarchizing it and making it up to the decision of, of of a much smaller percentage of the population. I think that sets up a basic tension in which populism can emerge. It's not the only kind of tension or or conflict that I think can generate populist movements, but but it is certainly a, a key one um, and and quite relevant to the early the earliest forms of populism in the late 19th century uh, in the United States, as well as, for example, recent experiments in left populism in Latin America certainly occurred at, at the juncture between uh, the existence of formal democracy and uh, at the same time, the existence of, of extreme economic inequality uh, and, and sort of privatization of vast areas of social and economic life. You mentioned that populism is usually conceived as a threat to elites, and that brings to mind two different ways in which populism tends to be discussed. So, you know, there's that sort of tendency which talks about populism as a kind of discursive practice in which there's that positing of a conflict between people and elites, but that it's a, a, a practice that can be used by mainstream political parties. So we might think of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher deploying that kind of discourse that pits ordinary, hardworking people against uh, unions and liberal intellectuals and so on. But then there's the second and, and probably more prevalent usage of the term, which, which you're pointing to, which talks about specific populist movements and parties, which are seen as to varying degrees as, as genuinely anti-systemic movements. So would you agree that although populism is seen as a threat, to some extent, elites have depended on populist feeling to a large degree? Oh, absolutely. And and um, and I kind of gestured to this at the beginning of the piece as well, that I see kind of liberal elites in our current moment having this kind of bipolar response to populism. On the one hand, they see it as a systemic threat to the, the kind of political establishment as it as it exists. And on the other hand, they see in it a kind of potent legitimizing force to kind of restore the order, right? And I think that they look, they see it, you know, as a threat and a resource, right? And they're kind of caught between those two. And, and interestingly, 
those actually map on to two different theoretical or conceptual ways to think about populism, um, as you just laid out. Um, and those, those two different kind of theories or conceptual approaches to populism exist on, in the literature on it. One tends to emphasize more populism as a broader movement of which leadership is a component of which rhetoric and discourse are components, but rhetoric discourse or, or kind of a leader centric understanding of rhetoric doesn't capture the entirety of the phenomena. So that's the first one that you, um, uh, uh, or maybe the second one you laid out, excuse me. And then, and then the other is populism as a form of leadership. And that has a long history, both in political practice, as you just noted with Thatcher or Reagan or other right-wing or neoliberal populists. And there are similar, um, they have colleagues in Latin America, um, like uh, Menem, for example, um, that, that deployed populist tropes in the support of a neoliberal agenda. Um, but that also has a parallel in the academic literature. There's a whole sort of vein of studying populism that defines it as a type of leadership, right? And 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 this vein kind of draws on, on Weber's understanding of charisma, right? So it sees populism as a particular form of charismatic leadership in which there's a relatively unmediated relationship between the leader and the masses and the the kind of um, political movement or force it, it, it describes as personalist and leader-centric and top-down. Um, and leaders in, in this formulation, leaders use emotional appeals to a kind of discontented mass to further the leader's own political program, right? It's leader-centric, both in the sense that it populism is tend to use to describe a style of leadership, but also the leader is seen as the protagonist, even so far as seeing the leader as maybe the inventor of, of the people and their grievances, right? So it, it can get quite um, uh, kind of individualistic, I would say, as a kind of um, form of understanding or way of an analyzing politics. Um, and that's in sharp contrast to scholarship, um, theoretical and historical, that sees populism as um, having a grassroots element, as, as describing a broader political phenomena that includes masses of people um, also determining their own identities and articulating discourses about their discontent and their political demands. And that question of leadership obviously brings to mind Antonio Gramsci's work and, you know, with, with regard to the sort of the right wing populists, well, the right wing politicians from mainstream political parties deploying populist rhetoric, um, Christian evangelicals could be seen as a sort of subordinate block within a kind of broader hegemonic project um, that's been pursued by the GOP for a very long time, right? Exactly. And, and I think that, you know, Stuart Hall's work drawing on Gramsci to kind of analyze the way in which someone like Margaret Thatcher um, was able to, and I don't want to downplay the leadership thing, right? Um, I, I just don't think it it fully exhausts the, the phenomena of populism whatsoever. Um, but, but someone like Margaret Thatcher or Reagan in the U.S., or for that matter, Clinton in the U.S., who actually, who's not seen as a populist leader often, but actually did deploy quite similar rhetoric to Reagan in terms of counterposing uh, a productive tax paying um, kind of part of the population against like the welfare queen, which which was kind of an earlier conservative trope, but one that Clinton certainly redeployed in his in in order to kind of galvanize support for his welfare reform, i.e. kind of cutting welfare policies, um, uh, cutting welfare programs in the U.S. So um, I think that um, right wing or conservative leaders um, trying to kind of restore the capitalist order in a moment of potential crisis um, are certainly very smart or savvy to use discourses uh, that um, articulate popular discontent in some way and attempt to channel it 
towards um, a program of, you know, in the cases that we just mentioned, neoliberal restoration or, or restoration of capitalism through through neoliberal policies. Um, but those are those those have a kind of I mean, in my in my opinion, those have uh, a kind of shelf life to them in the sense that I don't think that um, while that can work for a particular period of time, um, I don't think that such a, for example, neoliberal program is going to address the economic discontent that those leaders might be tapping into. And so I think that those that that ultimately that that possibility of neoliberal populism is one that becomes exhausted at a certain moment. It it can't continue to sustain itself because it kind of reproduces or 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 um, exacerbates the contradictions and forms of discontent that lead to the populist kind of opportunity in the first place. Um, uh, so it's a useful political strategy, but one that kind of I don't want to go so far as to say that it sows the seeds of its own destruction, but it certainly opens up opportunities for left or other types of populisms to emerge and contest it. And I suppose that fits with the idea of, of populism as a sort of permanent feature of the political landscape. It's just that, as you say, during long periods of time, populations are sort of, there's a sufficient degree of consent based around people being able to achieve a sort of minimal degree of, of material security. Yeah. And, and I think that kind of a to go, so we've been kind of talking about right-wing populism a bit, which I, I think it's important to name it as such and to distinguish it from left-wing populism. Um, um, and, and to sort of go to the left-wing side, I think it's sort of for the same set of reasons that uh, I tend to see um, when I'm taking a long durée approach towards political strategy and looking forward into the future and how the left can kind of organize against all of these resurgent right wing forces, both, you know, the, the existing kind of um, uh, context of neoliberalism that we've been fighting for a while, um, but also these newer um, uh, or, or more newly salient forces of xenophobia and anti-immigrant politics and things like that. Um, so when I look in that context and think, what can left populism offer, um, I like to think of it as a transitional strategy, not a kind of end goal, um, which might be something that differentiates me from, from MOVE, for example. Um, uh, I think of, of left populism as a kind of political strategy and a form of politics and a set of identities and discourses and, and organizational um, uh, venues in which people from disparate social positions can start to enter into solidarity with one another, formulate some kind of broadly shared identity of the dispossessed, the excluded, the exploited, the marginalized, um, the 99%, but defined in terms of, of their dispossession, exclusion, marginalization, right? Um, and, and can sort of define a shared identity and equally importantly, uh, define and target a shared enemy. Um, the 1% or, you know, the sort of political or economic elite. And I don't see that as a sort of end goal. Like my goal, if I had to sort of say what my utopia would be, it wouldn't be like a left populist government gets to power. But I think that on the road to whatever my utopia might be, left populism uh, is kind of on the way to that process, right? Or on the way to that, to that um, perhaps more radical um, uh, socialist utopia or whatever that might be, right? So I think that left populism is a really important passage point um, through which a more radical, even more radical politics and set of demands and, and desires might emerge. 
I'll come back to to the the question of left populism in a, in a second, but but just before we do, regarding right wing populism, how would you want to situate Donald Trump? Because it seems to me he he occupies a sort of hybrid position where, to some extent, he's reminiscent of uh, the traditional GOP uh, strategy of seeking to to mobilise grassroots um, populist feeling. But there's also clearly elements of a more sort of genuinely anti systemic project. Although, you know, the, the defeat of the hardcore Bannonites and, the, and their sort of removal from the administration seems to point to the decline of the relative decline of that strand. Um, how do you think of, of Trump in terms of uh, populism? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he certainly, certainly redeploys and also innovates upon an existing um, repertoire, we might call it, of right-wing populism. So that repertoire includes, um, um, when we're talking specifically about right-wing populism, that repertoire includes xenophobia, um, the kind of uh, idea of white grievance or white injury or the white backlash um, towards perceptions of, of um, uh, changing kind of race relations. Um, so I, I'm going all the way back to kind of Nixon's, you know, I mean, Southern strategy, uh, so-called, right? So you have that repertoire of white grievance, you have xenophobia, you have a sort of producerist element, which I'll just note can also uh, can also have left-wing variants uh, and, and was also a sort of trope of, of the early People's Party that I mentioned before. So producerism is the idea that there are people that are makers and people that are takers, right? There are people that produce what's, you know, in a good way, what society is or what our wealth is and people that take it. And you could see that that could have left-wing um, glosses on it in the sense of like um, the, the the wealth that laborers produce that's appropriated by the capitalist class. Um, but you can also see that it could have an anti-Semitic variant when we talk about sort of parasitic finance class or something like that. And it can also certainly have this kind of good taxpaying citizen against the welfare queen kind of variant. Um, so that's that right wing version of it is more the one that that Donald Trump taps into. Um, and then he also taps into another longstanding right-wing trope that that has a, a clear kind of populist uh, dimension to it, which is U.S. isolationism. You know, the idea that um, uh, which which again can have seemingly left-wing variants. You know, anti-war politics are about the U.S. kind of pulling back, but. In my view, true left-wing politics are always internationalist, right? So isolationism, I think, at a deeper level is is a kind of right-wing or conservative idea of sort of solidifying our borders um, and um, uh, you know, kind of walking away from 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 the world, right? In terms of climate agreements and and other types of of international obligations. So that's another another common right-wing um, trope. So and and then a, and then the last one that I'll note um, uh, that's very important and I almost forgot is the sort of trope of of law and order. Right. And, and crime and, and social deviance. And again, this can go back to Nixon, but um, or if not earlier than that. Um, but the idea that there are elements of society that are disturbances or disorders and need to be controlled in some way. Um, and so all of that law and order, xenophobia, isolationism, producerism, um, all of these are popular sentiments that predate Trump. And they're also right wing political tropes that predate Trump. But he taps into them at, at a moment of, of, you know, relatively high discontent with the existing political economic order. And they are effective for a certain part of the voting population. And, I, and I'm saying a certain part because I don't want to overplay the role that those rhetorical tropes, and to some extent they've been actualized in actual policy reforms, um, played in, in Trump's uh, election. I think that they were 
pivotal, uh, they had a specific narrow, but pivotal role in the sense that I think that they did help him win certain swing states and win over certain voters that may have voted for Obama in the past, right? They're not the entire reason for his election, which has more to do with, you know, partisan identity in the U.S. predicts how you vote, right? So mostly he's just picking up the same Republican voters that you know, voted for Romney, but, but in the U S system, right. Swing, swing states or states that could go either way or, or at the County level as well, like are very important. Right. So that, that is going to help determine, uh, his vote at the margin in some context. And I think in those contexts in, for example, Rust Belt states are precisely where some of those messages might have tapped into political and economic discontent that I think could have been tapped into in other ways, right? Not all of those people are, 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 um, necessarily like hardline racists or xenophobes, but that language spoke to something in their discontent and, um, uh, was turned them out to vote for someone that they may not have voted for otherwise. But again, I'll emphasize that most of his voters are affluent Republicans who, who may or may not have the economic concerns, for example, about, you know, downward mobility or, or deindustrialization. And also, it's always worth reminding, especially for a broader international or European audience that, um, uh, or UK audience, that so many Americans don't vote, right? So we also just have, and, and that was a low turnout, ele- you know, so a low turnout election. So it, it, a lot of people are just so discontent that they're not even voting. And, and, and that can be forgotten about in the political analysis. But I think it's always worth reminding ourselves. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a very important point because there does seem uh, on the left uh, amongst, you know, a significant number of people are just a resistance to thinking about the, you know, the relative complexity of, of, of voting blocks. You know, um, there's a similar dynamic in, in Brexit where the vote for Brexit was both um, a vote of, you know, sort of so-called left behind communities um, who hadn't enjoyed the, the economic be- benefits of of um of, of increasing GDP over the last, you know, 10, 20 years, but also, you know, a very affluent sector. So one of the very um, strong predictors of a vote for Brexit was somebody who was both a homeowner, but had also paid off their mortgage. So people who were actually economically quite, quite secure. Right. No, I mean, a key part of Trump's constituency is the petite bourgeoisie and, and small homeowners and small business owners. And, you know, so that that's I think that, again, right, as exactly like you're saying, gets lost in this sort of narrative that it's all, um, you know, working class people that are disaffected with the economy as a whole. That that's really not the majority of Trump voters. However, in some contexts, it was a pivotal block. Yeah, well, it, it seems to be that um, some people kind of want to see it as one or the other. You know, it, either it's the revolt of, of the white working class, you know, in, in quotation marks, or it's it's solely and nothing but the traditional Republican Republican voters. Exactly, exactly, which tells you more about the person's politics or, or understanding of politics than it does about the empirical phenomena. So going back to 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 your review in uh, M plus one, so although. Um, Chantal Mouffe is, is probably better known to European audiences than she is to an American audiences. She won't necessarily be known to, to every listener. C- could you say something briefly on her political project and uh, situate it historically? Yeah, so um, she's kind of been a, a, a figure both intellectual and political uh, on the European left since uh, kind of the 19, late 1970s, I think, uh, her first writing appeared. And then um, in, in the mid-1980s, she wrote... Uh, co-wrote with Ernesto Leclau, um, her her partner and, and co-author, Hegemony and Socialist Strategy, which 
um, is is a quite dense uh, book. I, I reread parts of it for the purposes of, of writing this review, uh, and I hadn't remembered how, how theoretically complex the language is and wondered how I understood it in college. So I think it's one of those books, and, and, and I don't mean this in, in a critical way necessarily, that people reference more than actually get through the whole thing, because it is there, there's a lot in there. There's theories of discourse, of subjectivity, there's reinterpretations of Gramsci and Schmidt, um, there's a whole kind of reanalysis of 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 the the prospects for leftist politics in the in the 1980s in in a context where um, uh, those prospects look pretty pretty dim. Um, there's an attempt to formulate post a post Marxist kind of leftism that departs from the first through fourth internationals. Um, so there's a, a tremendous amount going on in, in that in that book. But uh, that that is one one you know seminal text that is that they're both quite um, uh, known for. And I'll just say a little bit more um, um, than what I just said about about why that, that book is seen as important. It, it, it really marks um, a, a pivotal moment in, in the history of sort of left theorizing of explicitly moving away from the, quote, industrial working class as the protagonist of radical politics and also side by side moving away from socialism or communism as the kind of telos or end goal of radical politics. So it, it moves away from both of those quite taken for granted assumptions or premises of of um, of leftist um, uh, uh, theorizing and political strategy that had sort of reigned for, you know, 100 or 200 years prior. Right. So it is. So it's a, it's an important turning point, not that on its own it. It, it created that shift, but it certainly inaugurated, I think, a way of, of thinking about leftist politics that purported to go beyond um, the industrial working class, purported to offer to, to, excuse me, aspire to a different goal than socialism, and then came up with a whole um, set of different identities other than the working class and also different goals other than socialism to work towards. And it's been quite influential in that regard. Um, and then since then, MOOF has sort of elaborated on these ideas and her work on on radical democracy, on agonism, um, <clears throat> and now more recently on on left populism, but they all share a set of concerns and orientations that honestly have not changed dramatically since hegemony and socialist strategy, but have re slightly retooled or modified them for the distinct political contexts that have emerged since then. And I'll just note what those contexts are. They're the sort of consolidation of neoliberalism, especially in its third wave variant. So you have the initial kind of neoliberal revolution that we kind of mentioned very briefly earlier in terms of Thatcher and, and Reagan. Um, but then likewise, under you know, Blair and and um, and Clinton, you have the full kind of hegemonic consolidation of neoliberalism as the kind of parameters of bipartisan politics. Um, and so Mouffe kind of responded to that moment. She also um, has more recently responded to the kind of opening back up of the possibility of left politics and and most recently to the possibility of left populism being reclaimed as, as a strategy. But again, towards similar aims and with a similar understanding of social ontology or the kind of who the so relevant social actors are as she first developed with Laclau in the mid-1980s. Yeah, I, I listened to a recent interview she did with Navarra Media and um, she was situating the early work in terms of a struggle to radicalise social democracy and to integrate black radical movements and the feminist movements and queer movements um, into the traditional uh, workers' movement. 
And, you know, from thinking about it in that way, it seems, you know, a, you know, a pretty laudable thing to be doing, right? And certainly at the time, it seems there was, um, there was a real failure on the part of the left to sort of integrate the, the demands that emerged from, from the social movements of the 1960s, which had this much broader focus than just the question of, of, of capitalism. Um, so, so where do you think that that falls down? Yeah, yeah. So I want to I want to say a little bit more about that. And then I'll say what I think the problems are with her specific formulation of, of the relationship between these different types of movements. Um, so just to kind of pick up where I, some of the things that I said in, in, in response to the last question. Um, so instead of the working class as the kind of um, privileged kind of protagonist of history, we get a proliferation of social movements. She doesn't dispense with the working class altogether, but she lines them up kind of side by side with a bunch of new social movements that emerge, you know, you could say starting in the 1960s and, and in the 70s again and the 80s and up until our present, right? So she's talking about um, feminism, environmentalism, anti-racism. Um, those are the primary ones that, that she alludes to. So what scholars um, beginning in the 1960s called new social movements, those for her, um, it, it's not that they totally displace the working class, but I think on, you know, on, first of all, they kind of are meant to ally with the working class in some way. And, um, and second of all, I think she sees them as more vibrant than the working class or more interesting or newer. Um, and so, so they're kind of where she spends more of her attention, even though she never claims that the working class is irrelevant completely. Um, so that's, that's the actor or the protagonist, right? And then in terms of the goal, exactly what you, what you said, she said on Navarra Media, um, the goal, instead of socialism <clears throat> or communism, um, the goal is, radical democracy. Defined similarly to how we defined it at the outset of this interview, um, though I don't always find that she fully fleshes out what democratic control over the economy might look like, and I see that to be a major shortcoming, but she does have a sense of radical democracy being kind of ongoing contestation over the conditions of, of shared existence. So that, that rather than socialism, which I think she probably sees as a state centric kind of maybe authoritarian, you know, definition of socialism, uh, that rather than socialism is the kind of telos of her radical project. Um, and so what, what is the problem here? Um, uh, I think it is absolutely imperative, as you just noted, to integrate class, race, um, gender, uh, uh, immigration status, and also environmental crisis um, into a holistic understanding of, cap of, of, of the social order and of capitalism as a social order, which is marked by variegated forms of oppression and domination, um, which interlock and intersect with one another. Um, and I kind of take this theorization from a number of places, but most recently, uh, Nancy Fraser's work has really nicely outlined uh, looking at capitalism as a broader social order that goes beyond the, the economic narrowly construed. So in that sense, I I agree with MOVE, I guess. But the problem, um, and I think the reason that I, I like someone like Frazier's work better, just to take one example, or Stuart Hall's work better, to take another example, is that by kind of lining up movements side by side and seeing them as fundamentally different from one another and drawing on a different set of identities and um, demands, and also importantly, as fundamentally distinct from class-based movements, and even somehow outside of capitalism or unrelated to capitalism, I think she makes a fundamental error in understanding um, how gender operates as, as a system of domination, how race operates as a system of domination without linking it 
to capitalism or to class, um, as Marxist feminists do, as, as theorists of racial capitalism do, as theorists of imperialism do, um, without understanding the ways in which gender domination is reinforced by or reinforces uh, capitalism or capitalist division of labor um, or, in, or economic inequality, you really have a quite thin understanding of what's so bad about gender or what's so bad about racial inequality, right? Um, so I think that, that that is one really important place where she goes wrong, the, the juxtaposition of class against or in contrast to other social movements that I guess are somehow unrelated to class, or even she goes as far to say unrelated to the quote social structure, which I guess is a term that she deeply dislikes. Um, but by analyzing or sort of isolating those those movements um, um, in, in isolation from from capitalism uh, and the broader kind of social order in which they exist, um, I don't think she can offer an account either of the type of oppression that they represent, um, or of the political strategies or forms of social solidarity that would be absolutely necessary to, to dismantle them. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.